Hello, everybody. This is Tandem Coaching Academy's Keeping Agile Non-Denominational Podcast. Myself, Alex Kudnov, and Sheree Silas are your hosts today. And today we have Johanna Rothman joining us. Hi, Johanna. How are you doing? Um, thank you, Alex. And I'm doing very, very well. Fantastic. So uh, I don't really think you need a lot of introductions. Uh, in Agile world, you're kind of towering big. But still, for those of us uneducated, just introduce yourself. Who are you? So I'm, people often refer to me as the pragmatic manager because my newsletter is, has that same name. I, I really focus on pragmatic and practical ways to help people look and see at what their um, product development system is and then decide what they want to adapt and when. So I rarely do big, big ongoing coaching engagements or consulting engagements, but I often do keep clients for a long time. And I do this kind of a workshop and then some coaching and consulting, that kind of a workshop. So as they grow and learn and learn how to teach themselves, I can come in, do a little a little intervention and then go away again. So that's that's how I work. Um, other people might know me as uh, as a writer. I tend to once I got the writing bug. I've I've now been writing a lot more. And yes, I I released three books last year, and I have plenty more in me for this year. And I also speak and I I consult. It's all that stuff. Fantastic. So uh, I know today we are going to talk about agility and agility, not in terms of some frameworks and frameworks. Well, let's admit frameworks are important. Sometimes they help us getting things done. But at the end of the day, when you go into your big engagements and maybe when you leave and then come back for those tune ups, I don't really think your main focus is on frameworks. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I have. So there are pieces of frameworks I find helpful. So, for example, I find iterations helpful often at the team level. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am not a big fan of more traditional stand-ups, but I am a huge fan of walking the board. Right, so I now talked about Scrum and Kanban. And I, I do not use either of them religiously. I use both of them when it, it seems like they're useful. As for scaling frameworks, I wrote a book called uh, Agile and Lean Program Management. So that's what I think about scaling frameworks. Mm-hmm. So non-religiously, sounds really like music to our ears at Tandem Coaching. We are saying we keep Agile non-denominational. We don't really care who you pray and whether it's Kanbans or Scrum Gods. All, all it matters is agility and proper coaching. So when you say you are going into coaching engagement, what is coaching for you? Oh, so for me, coaching is... Uh, offering options with support. So I often find, well, there are also nine uh, stances of coaching, which I'm sure you folks use all the time. I try not to 
teach all the time, I find that sometimes my clients just need a little hint about where they could go. And sometimes, sometimes they want me to say, okay, here are your three or four or five or six options. And here are the references that go with those options. And I, I highly recommend that you read these things. And then they look at me and say, Johanna, if I, if I did not have time to read them before, I do not have time to read them now. Fine. I, I, will, I will summarize for you so that we can talk about the pros and the cons. And, if, and then how can you make, and maybe with support from me, how can you make the smallest possible experiment to see what you would do next? Right. This is not about how I think a manager or a senior leader should work. This is about what will work for them in their context. And that's so for me, coaching has a beginning and an end. It had it's about offering options with support. It's about not it's about realizing that even if they even if the client realizes, well, says that they know what their what their problem is. There's often a whole system around the problem. And they might see a kernel of it or a kernel of the truth. And my job is to help them figure out that larger system so that they can really see where, where they have choices for interventions. Jonah, when I hear you talk, you obviously, like, you know this stuff. And um, yet I get the sense that when you work with your clients, you're, you're not all that prescriptive. So I, I am a little prescriptive in terms of whip, right? I, so I wrote the project portfolio book. Oh, over, the first one over 10 years ago. And every time I go into an organization and work with them with a project portfolio, they have so many projects and so many products. It's, it's inconceivable to me that anybody could think that that is um, useful for the organization. So I do say, if you had to do only three projects and everyone rolls their eyes at three, right? If, if you only had to do three projects, what would those be? And that's how I come at the WIP problem, the work in progress problem. Um, so I, I'm not even really religious about that because I, I know I'm not gonna limit them to three. But I want the, to get them to thinking about smaller batches, work in progress, how to, how to have experiments that actually work. So, yeah, I, I think it's not really, I, I guess if I'm, if I'm religious about anything, it's about managing the whip, making shorter commitments at any level, right? And, and really figuring out figuring out how to do the work that the organization really will find valuable. So I hear you keep coming back to this idea of experimentation. So the context and then you have this knowledge. So let's try experiment how this knowledge fits your context and how that might work to you, for, for you. So I'm wondering, uh, when you're leaving your organizations, uh, hopefully in much better state than you found them, 
how do you ensure that this idea of experimentation, making hypotheses and either proving or disproving them, uh, percolates the whole organization and maybe ingrained in its culture rather than just one off thing? Oh, so that, look, if I could do that, I could charge a gazillion bucks and, <laughs> and really have it all made. I, I will freely admit, I offer this to my clients. Often the system is what prevents them from learning from experiments. In so many organizations, I hear things like failure is not an option. How can you do an experiment if failure is not an option? Um, I, I, I really like to reframe failure as learning early. Um, so I don't even say learn fast. I say, how early can we learn? What's the smallest thing we could do to learn? And especially for senior and senior leadership and middle managers, I say, what, how would you need to reframe this business of experimentation and learning so it fits into your environment while you and your manager also try to change the environment, right? This is, I think that this is really the hard the hardest thing to do. Um, since this is a podcast, I'm sure nobody can see my hands, but you can oh, they, probably they hear it. Oh, oh good, <laughs> good. Then people will see me try and put this all together. So um, the more we have individual rewards based on outputs, the less we can encourage experimentation. So this is really, um, moving from an output-based approach to the organization to an outcome-based approach to the organization is a really big deal. And then how can we change the reward system so that we are able to reward people on outcomes that they support, right? Managers, if managers are doing outcomes, that means they're not really managing, they're in the work. So how do we how do we change? Okay, how do we change everything about the organization? Support <laughs> learning experimentation and rewards based on outcomes. That's a kind of a big ask. So I don't I never expect to do that in the first engagement or even the second or the third. I this is um, I have found that the well the way that works for me to help my clients achieve more agility in their organizations is to, to kind of poke away at all the pieces that prevent flow in the organization. Mm -hmm. so. um, I heard you say something in there about managers and I'm really interested to find out from you if it's not the manager's job to be in the work producing the outcomes, um, well, what is it? I see, I see a bunch of people go into organizations and say, you're the manager, sit down, shut up, go sit over there. You don't have a job anymore. This is oh. agile. Um, and so I'd love to hear how you address that. Oh, so I think managers have a hugely important job. And these are the seven principles in the Modern Management Made Easy books. So the first thing is to clarify the purpose for you as a manager, for the team or teams that you lead and serve, and then for the for the overall organization. I 
every single time I go into a Fortune 100 organization, and I usually come in to do project portfolio work, and I say, they say to me, help us with the project portfolio. And I say, fine, why are you, why does your organization exist? What is, what is the thing that sets you apart from all the other um, organizations? And how can you, um, how can you optimize for that with your, with your customers? And they all kind of look at me and say, why? We, I have to start with why? I can't start with what or how? And I say, no, no, you got to start with the why. And you might need to iterate on that. And this is, this is something I do a lot in with these organizations. And even with smaller organizations, um, there's, there's kind of a sweet spot for seeing the why in a smaller organization, not in terms of people, not so much in terms of revenue, but the fewer people they have, tendency, they tend to be more focused on this one why. However, as soon as they get larger, they have more products, they serve more customer bases, the why gets totally diffused. And that makes it a lot more difficult to see where the manager provides value. Mm -hmm. So if you start, as if you're a manager in an organization and you say, okay, I'm going to listen to Johanna just for 30 seconds. Um, and I will clarify my purpose. Why am I here? What is the value that I offer? What, what value does my team offer? And then what value do our products offer the organization? So that's why starting with, with the value, the purpose thing is really important. So, I don't think that, go ahead. So, so Jukana, just kind of for a moment, let's say I'm that middle manager and I'm in that Fortune 100 organization. And I was lucky to get in that meeting where you give this speech and where you are asking this why question. Okay, I'm very clear on the purpose of organization. Let's say we did this job and my hour is over and I'm going back to my desk and I still need to deliver stuff and I still have deadlines and I still have bugs in production. So yeah, useful. But how does it serve me? That's where you go to seeking outcomes and optimizing for that overarching goal. Once you know the why, now you can, you can talk about the outcomes and the overarching goal. So that if people, look, I am, I have shiny object syndrome also. And I think that a lot of people in the organization say, oh, that thing over there, I would really love to go attack that. And that's where thinking in minimums, thinking in how little can we do for now, finishing this thing so we can go to the next thing. That's all, that uh, is all wound up with the purpose and the overarching goal. Mm -hmm. So if we think about how do we work in flow efficiency at all levels, right? So if um, we, we understand about flow efficiency for teams, right? We, we think that way for any agile team. What about if managers thought that way? What if managers had a cohort that they collaborated with? First level managers, mid-level managers, senior managers. We talk about the senior leadership team all the time. We talk about product and feature teams all the time. What happened to those other people? They are not chopped liver. 
right? So how can we collaborate to create outcomes with our peers that the organization finds value in? Well, okay, change that around to a sentence that does not end in a preposition. So, so absolutely love where this conversation goes and uh, kind of outcomes over outputs has been kind of my topic for the last two, three years. And uh, what I find uh, not impossible, but difficult uh, is to teach people consistently how to change that mindset, how to start looking for outputs, uh, for outcomes rather than uh, outputs. And it's a hard work for an agile coach. So I would love to hear your thoughts or maybe kind of tips and tricks, how you coach people to get them to that point where they naturally start thinking uh, in uh, outcomes. So I think it's a combination of several things. This is a great question because I haven't had to write this down yet. So thank you. I think it's about who is the recipient of this work? And at some point, the recipient is a customer, right? A user, a customer, somebody who will use this end product. And how do I get that, the recipient, how do I get the work to the recipient as quickly as possible? With it done, right? I'm not talking about, even if it's just, generating a report for inside the organization. I'm talking about it really, really done so that the recipient can use it. And when I start to talk about, when I talk about the work that way, that's when the managers realize they have customers, uh, I should say customers in quotes, that across the organization, that other people need information that they have. They might need some work that only the manager can provide. They need multiple managers to make a decision so that other people can use the result of that decision. And when we start talking about that, it makes a lot less sense to think about, oh, I was in 14 meetings this week. And instead start to talk about how many delays did I incur because I was not able to make a decision about this particular question this week. So managers often make decisions that other people need. And so if the manager, even if you need 15 managers in a room, which we all know about kind of the sweet spot of six to seven, that's fine. Even if you need 15 managers and it looks like a very expensive meeting, if you can get to a decision at the end of that one meeting, even if it's it's a, a cantankerous meeting, If you can get to that decision, you've only spent an hour or 90 minutes or three hours, whatever it is, but you have not tried to do um, a meeting and then three weeks of delay and then another meeting and three weeks of delay, another meeting and three weeks of delay. You have actually made a decision that other people can use to go on with their work. Hmm. Sounds like value stream for decision-making. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I have I haven't called it that yet. Um, maybe I should. I don't know. All right. So um, I really want to go back 
to something you said a, a while back. Uh, Joanne, I have to say that when I listen to you, I just keep building a backlog of questions in my head because there's so many things I could ask. But um, you mentioned about compensation and rewards. And, you know, that's a big deal. And how do you help people move from that individual output reward system to something different that's more effective? So the first thing I do is try and enlist HR because HR is the holder of the reward system. So I want to make HR my allies. I also try and, and work with senior leadership and say, look at how you guys are rewarded. You're rewarded on your ability to work together, to create outcomes for the organization. You have some delayed compensation and some immediate compensation. And your delayed compensation is often based on your ability to make the organization better. Now we can talk about whether or not stock is the right way to do that. There, there are very specific things I am not in favor of. However, uh, if you look at a senior leadership team, they often have much more of a team-based reward system. And then, then we come down to individual people who were supposed to have outputs of, yeah, you checked in code this week or you worked on that project or anything else that's just uh, totally output-based. And then the poor managers in the middle have often, um, I'm just going to say it, a random kind of compensation. It's not based on their ability to, um, to support and coach other people, to raise the entire level of the organization. It's not based on them working across the organization with their peers. It's kind of in my experience, it's kind of random. So what I, I don't think we can move from totally individual-based compensation to totally team-based compensation. I'm not even sure that that's a good move. However, if we want people to work as collaborative teams, why wouldn't we base some of their compensation on their ability to work as a collaborative team? I, I, I mean, you know, call me silly. I just think you should reward what you want. And I freely admit, I, I did not get into software because I was such a great collaborator. Right? I, I have the gray hair to prove how old <laughs> I've been in this industry. And I had one team project my senior year of college. It was such a disaster. I thought, I don't even want to go into software. But luckily, I read I read the Psychology of Computer Program Computer Programming by Jerry Weinberg, and I thought, oh, yeah, if I could get rid of my ego, maybe other people would get rid of theirs. Yeah, maybe not. Um, however, once I started to work, I realized, yeah, this is all team-based learning. Even back in those literally waterfall days, because we had to work that way. There were a variety of reasons. The, uh, this was a government contract. But it was so important that I learned how to work with people. And I, I think that if we said to people, part of your compensation is how well you work with others, how well you support and, and lead others, how well you, you coach other people who are your peers so that they learn what you know I think, 
I think we would have really, really different um, environments in the organization. I agree, I agree. Um, and so one of the principles in your book is to build the empathy with the people who do the work. I'd love to hear what does that actually mean to you? <laughs> so one of the big management fallacies is if the work is easy to explain, it must be easy to do. And this is where we get a lot of pushback from management on how could it possibly take that long to do the thing that I want you to do, right? How could it possibly be? Well, if, if the managers don't know about the friction in the organization, right? If the managers have said, so one of my clients several years ago had cross-functional, quote, development teams. They had developers and testers in, in, in cross-functional teams. Call it 25 teams of developers and testers. And these people were great until they had to um, use any part of the UI for their work. They only had 12 UI people. So what happened? There was a request into the UI manager who would then assign the next person up to work with a given team. And that person had to be returned to the pool of UI, manage, uh, of UI people. You can see where I'm going with shared services, right? Shared services don't work for any kind of knowledge-based organization. And the next time you needed a UI person, you might get Joe Random as opposed to Mary, um, Mary Perfect, right? You, you could never tell. And then these poor people could not release on their own and had to go to a dev, literally, they call this a DevOps team. It was a deployment team. So while they were sort of kind of agile in their, in their development and testing, anytime they needed a UI um, expert, they needed to go out and wait and wait and wait for days or sometimes a couple of weeks and then to release to into the code base, um, well, release to the customers, that took another two or three weeks minimum because this central release team was unable to cope with all of the changes that the, um, that the organization wanted. When I, when I created a picture of this for the middle managers, they said, it cannot be that hard. It just can't be that way. I said, I talked to some people, right? Here are the people I talked to. Do you want to go check with them? Maybe I only got a subset of the organization. I could be totally wrong. And when I, I have found, and I, I suspect that Sherry and, Ella and Alex, you have found this too. When you don't say, I'm right and you're wrong, right? When you say, I could be wrong, people are much more likely to believe you. Right, so this is also a piece of extending empathy, and this is this is to the managers who had no idea they created this uh, this situation. So once they realized that my drawing was actually the best possible outcome <laughs> and not the worst, um, with all the delays, that's when they said we have got to change how we work. So that was that business of extending empathy and not believing what people say to you right? Understanding that you might have a different perspective on what they actually think is happening and, and saying, I could be wrong. 
And it's interesting. So I want to kind of build a little bridge from um, building empathy with with whoever, with your reports, with your peers, with your peer groups and all that um, to something that was in my mind for quite some time. And um, I keep telling people that, look, we're all busy. Everybody's overwhelmed. Like every client I take on, one of the first thing I hear, I have no time. I'm overwhelmed. And especially when we work from home, we we started working longer hours. We got back our commute time and we spend that on work. And what's falling through cracks here is realization that we are getting better and it just kind of goes by. We don't stop, we don't reflect, we don't celebrate. And when I say we need to celebrate successes, people like, they talking about? I mean, what to celebrate here? Yes, we're released like one minute earlier. So what? So how do you build this culture of maybe reflection on your own success uh, and build it and make it ingrained in this fabric of organization and teams? So I think it starts at the individual level where you offer reinforcing feedback where people have succeeded. Right. If you catch people succeeding at the individual level and you say, Alex, I'm actually going to use a real example because Alex really saved me from myself. So I, I'm not sure if all the people out there realize um, you guys look for the best Agile articles and we can we can um, submit our own Agile articles. I had totally forgotten. I had submitted something a month ago. I then submitted three or four more. There's a limit of three or two or something. Um, Alex reached out to me and said, um, how many of these do you want? You only have three. You have four or five. <laughs> Some, I, I made one of those stupid mistakes. And then one, one of the nice things that Alex did for me afterwards is when I said, thank you, um, I'm sorry. Can we do this over again? He then said, thank you. I really appreciate you. I think you used the appreciation words. I appreciate you working with me. And I thought, oh my God, he's, he's catching me failing and succeeding all at the same time. And the way, the way you reflected back to me was really wonderful, right? I mean, we had this little email conversation. I had to admit I was kind of an idiot. Fine. Every so often I am. So this business of catching people succeeding at the, at the kind of the micro level catching people succeeding at the team level, catching people succeeding at the organizational level. If we never acknowledge that, boy, we are really missing opportunities to reinforce great behavior and great teamwork and great products. So I, you know, we used to have ice cream socials at the end of a big release. Now we release every day or at least every couple of weeks. We, so, we, would get, we would get fat if we had yeah, ice yeah, cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I cannot afford to get any fatter. So yeah, so we can't do any, We're and we're all remote right now. So we're not going to do ice cream socials or drinking. Well, we might do drinking, drinking. but <laughs> yeah, um, but we're on our own Zooms. But acknowledging in words, I think is very, very different 
than acknowledging in a ceremony. And when we use the words, I appreciate you for, or um, I am so thrilled that you, this team, were able to finish this product and here's what two or three of our customers said, right? Please take pride in your accomplishments as a team. But I, I really like this, this business of reinforcing feedback starting one-on-one. We're so focused on change-focused feedback, right? I, I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me, Johanna, you're too blunt and direct. Yeah, I'm not going to change. However, when my managers started to say to me, well, when my, when my colleagues started to say to me, I really understood what you said there. You said it in words I could hear. That was reinforcing feedback that made a difference. So it's interesting. What I want to do is to take this a little bit level up. And uh, it sounds like uh, all this appreciative feedback and kind of building this noticing small things and noticing small and celebrating small uh, wins. Um, that speaks to values, that speaks to personal values. And it has to speak to cultural and has to speak to organizational values. And we probably all saw like how these company values that get on the wall, how they are born. Probably a group of executives go to a posh resort having like, I don't know, two, three days powwow. And then uh, everybody receives an email. Here's our company values starting Monday. Everybody go and leave this value. <laughs> so um, that aside, we know companies that actually have really clear set of values, really defined set of values. Um, and even, even at that point, we see like we see we see with Google, right? And see a lot of articles that kind of Google lost its way, do no harm or do not be do not be evil. So how do we coach organizations so that their actions and activities at the lower level, at the manager level, at executive level, they are they, they align with the values. So it's kind of that integrity that you bring in into the company and it percolates it from top down. There's a lot there to unpack. So let me first start with personal values and personal integrity. If you have been a manager in any organization, even at the first level, your company or a company in the past has probably asked you to do something that violates your personal integrity. And I, if, you, if you have not been in that position, I'm, I'm not sure how you got that lucky. So I have been in that position many times, often where my managers ask me to lie on behalf of the company to a customer, which I think is the worst possible thing you can do because then you lose all the trust. It takes you forever and ever to get it back. And this is, this is the same with value-based integrity for the people you lead and serve. So I like to think about how can I, what are my values? How can I exercise my personal integrity in service of the purpose of the organization, in service of leading and serving the team? 
And then I, I'd like to extend that to, is there anything we could do as a department or as, as a team, right? Even, even if it's just one feature team or uh, for one product, how can we serve our customers the best way we know how and serve the people that we work with the best way we know how? For me, that's still about value-based integrity. I did have a manager once who thought that he was um, kind of the king of account management. And so I, I happened to go on vacation. I was, I was the project manager and uh, quote lead developer for this three person project. There was one other uh, developer and a mechanical engineer. This was a, a customer in, in the Detroit area it was automation for um, um, a car manufacturing machine line. Okay, so a very difficult project back in the 80s. And <laughs> I had the temerity to actually go on my honeymoon and be gone for 10 days. I know, what a mistake. It's terrible. I know. Yeah, terrible thing. So I had, I had left um, the other senior, uh, the other software engineer in charge. I had told the client I was leaving. They said, have a great time. I said, thank you. I will. I told the mechanical engineer and the software guy, have a great time. I'm sure I will be thinking of, of algorithms on my honeymoon. They all laughed at me. It was great. So we, we were all set. This was not going to be a problem. And then this VP in the organization decided to insert himself into this project. And when I came back, there were lights on the answering machine. This is back in the 80s. We had answering machines. Uh, and a message from the senior, from the software engineer saying, please come in. As soon as you get this message, please call me. Please come in. Don't take that other day of vacation and do your laundry. Because I said I was going to come back and do laundry. No, no, please come in. You have to fix this. The customer is all upset. So this this VP had a value, his values were no, no possible project can proceed without my involvement. That was not based on personal integrity. That was based on anti-personal integrity. And I, I managed to um, salvage that project. It's amazing what you can do in, in only in under two weeks if you really try and <laughs> screw it up. So I managed this to salvage that. A day of laundry. Yeah, yeah. So I, I managed to salvage that project and, and the customer, luckily I had built enough trust with the customer that they believe me and not the VP. So, um, cause the VP was lying and telling all kinds of horrible things. So I think it's really important to say, what do you do when you're faced with these decisions? Do you go along? And you might need to, right? There have been plenty of times when I have called my husband. This is back when I was inside organizations. And I, I said, I just came out of a senior management meeting. I might not have a job in three hours. I mean, because, but I was not willing to go along to get along. And I, I think everybody will find their, their way. What, what will, what does integrity mean to them? And when do they exercise it? And I, 
I hold no judgment, especially on middle managers, because they are in the worst possible position. They probably make enough money that they would really feel uh, pro they and they probably have the health care. Right. And if you're listening outside the United States, we still have health care um, through our uh, our employers, which makes leaving a job a very, very challenging decision. So. I, I do not hold judgment on these people. I ask them to think about what makes sense. Now, if you think about value-based integrity in terms of policies for the organization, that's an even easier decision, right? How, how, how often do we punish people for, for telling the truth on their time cards? The fact that we still ask people to fill out time cards is just silly, right? I mean, that's nuts, but I have too many clients that do that. So can you use your value-based integrity to say, we can trust these people to do the work that we ask them to do. I mean, we only employ adults. They somehow get themselves dressed and fed and clothed and they pay mortgages and have children. I mean, I think that if we ask them to work 40 hours a week with a team, and they, some weeks they might only work 30 because they're mobbing and they're so totally exhausted. And some weeks they might work 45, as Alex talked about, or maybe longer. So can we trust them to do the job if we look for out, outcomes, not outputs? And that's where we can really apply value-based integrity. How many policies and procedures can we eliminate? Yeah. Well, that's really fascinating view on the whole sluice of really ingrained and really entrenched problems. And I'm pretty sure we're not going to solve that in the next year or two. Uh, it's a much longer conversation. So Johanna, you mentioned that three books in 2020, and I'm pretty sure that lockdown helped. It kind of held, held you in one place. You didn't spend a lot of time on airplanes, at airports, at hotels. And you were just kind of cranking at it and kind of writing it out. So um, what's on your desk for 2021? So I'm, I'm doing the audio. I'm not going to speak the audio for the modern management made easy because, oh, God, life is short. I'm going to, I'm going to have somebody else do that. Um, I'm finishing the consulting book. I'm getting um, the write a conference proposal in print and, and audio and all that stuff. So those, those books will be done this year. I am, I am working on a project owner book. Uh, I'm not sure if I can commit to that being done in 2021, but I will certainly be on my way. And yeah, that's a, uh, so yeah, more books. I'm not sure I will have three done in 2021, but there will certainly be two and a half. Hmm. Give us a little bit of a sneak peek into the consulting. What's the, what's the high level thought behind that? Oh, so that book is in progress on LeanPub right now. Uh, it's really about understanding your value so you can apply your value to your clients. I find so a lot of a lot of clients when they come to when they, when we have a discovery call they say or or an email what do you charge what's your hourly rate 
<laughs> I say, I don't have an hourly rate. I, I create projects where I use value-based pricing. And they said, that's going to cost me a lot more money. I said, probably not. It's probably going to be less money because we're focused on the same outcomes, right? And it might be less time. So I, it's not that I'm trying to upend everything about consulting, although maybe I am, um, but it's really about how do we, how do we find this partnership with our, with our clients so that we can, we can provide the best possible outcomes that they can use right away. Right. So I said at the beginning, I, I rarely have a long engagement with a client, but I often kind of dip in and then dip out. And I, I often do have ongoing consulting or retainer or coaching agreements, but that it's all, it's all focused on one thing for a time, unless it's a retainer, in which case that's, that's a different kind of just access to my crazy brain. So um, but I find that if, if I do my work really well, the clients have different problems when I leave. And they already have some tools to manage those new problems. So why would I want to work with them on the same old problems when I can work with them on new problems? I was like, yeah, I will come. I will help you solve the problems, but make sure, just be sure when I leave, you will have more. Uh, that sounds great. <laughs> well, and that's be, this is like the cascading defect problem yeah. in software, right? You fix, you fix the obvious thing and then it yeah. uncovers all this unobvious stuff. Yeah. So yeah, we're systems. Yeah. And uh, well, all right. This is all time we had for today. Uh, we thank Johanna Rothman to join for joining us today on our Tandem Coaching Academy Skipping Agile Non-Denominational Podcast. This was Alex Kudnov and Sheree Silas, your hosts. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>